This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My title is, How is my iPhone changing me? Neuroscience and Thomistic Psychology. Technology changes us. Electric light bulbs and gas lamps before that, automobiles and gasoline-powered farm equipment, gunpowder and steam locomotion, clocks and the printing press, bronze and iron. These technologies took hold because they helped us to achieve what we wanted and created opportunities for new things we didn't know we wanted. And in and through that, they also changed our patterns of behavior, our relationships, family dynamics and economic institutions, the nature of political authority and social status, and our very sense of self. These technologies changed what we wanted, and they changed the we that wanted. This isn't a new or controversial observation. Plato, in the Phaedrus, has Socrates remark that the very invention of writing had psychic and social costs. We are used to promoting writing as an essential skill of a well-developed soul, and Plato used it to great effect. But Socrates argues that as a tool for reminding, writing weakened the faculty of remembering, implanting forgetfulness in our souls. He warned that after the advent of writing, people will seem to know much, while for the most part, they know nothing. Filled not with wisdom, but with the conceit of wisdom, they will be a burden to their fellows. Digital devices are changing us, especially portable devices in their most popular applications, social media, combining communication with entertainment. This was less well understood several years ago, but now it is common knowledge. The phenomenon invites multiple levels of analysis and has been addressed from the perspectives of political theory, media studies, sociology, childhood development, and more. If you are interested in how digital media influences your sense of political and bodily agency, I recommend Matthew Crawford's The World Beyond Your Head on Becoming an Individual in the Age of Distraction. If you are interested in how digital media has fostered social alienation and isolation, I recommend Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. For practical advice about how to discipline your use of digital media, you can try Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And for neuroscientific analysis of the way the new online ecosystem puts such stress on our old biological hardware, there is The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World by Adam Gasly and Larry Rosen. My approach in this talk is to follow Plato's lead and ask about this technology, what does it change in our soul? What appetites does it feed? And what does it starve? What powers does it exercise? And which does it allow to atrophy? I want to explore how digital technology is changing our understanding of ourselves, our sense of self-awareness, our interior life, our very experience of agency. And not only in what ways are those changing, but by what mechanisms? 
Increasingly, we are aware that the personal effects of digital technology are not accidental, that in many ways, the devices and the applications they run are designed to change us. They are engineered specifically to capture and modify our sense of ourselves, how we think, and what we do. A recent documentary, The Social Dilemma, is very frank about this. Although it addresses very various effects of social media, like political polarization, media manipulation, economic exploitation, depression and anxiety, relationship breakdown, disrupted family dynamics, body image and bullying, you've heard about all of this, right? It's still gestures towards a deeper, more fundamental problem, what social media does to our inner life. Along the way, I find advantage in the fact that the designers of digital technology have paid particular attention to the closest thing we have to a classical analysis of the powers of the soul, cognitive science and especially neuroscience. I am not an expert in these areas, but a little familiarity with classical philosophical psychology gives me an appreciation of the power of neuroscience and also a sense of its limits. Neuroscience helps us to understand how digital media is changing us, but we need other resources to evaluate and protect ourselves from the most ominous of those changes. The term smartphone was coined in the 1990s, but the word, and for most of us, the very idea didn't become common until the first iPhone was released in 2007. <clears throat> Within three years, Apple released the first iPad. The iPhone was well-established in world markets, and other web browsing app-based touchscreen pocket computers were competing for market share. 2010 was also the year that Nicholas Carr published The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Carr had noticed that spending more time online had changed his habits of attention as a reader and a writer, and he turned to neuroscience to explain his experience. The way we interact with the internet, he said, rewires our brains. Web surfing makes us shallow thinkers. The interruption, the scrolling, the clicking, all, all this breaks up our attention and prevents information from getting from working memory to long-term memory. The abundance of stimuli presents too much cognitive load. The brain adapts thanks to its neuroplasticity, literally reconfiguring its patterns of activity, making it easier for us to keep scrolling and multitasking, but harder to concentrate, to remember, to contemplate. Although concerned mainly with the internet in general, rather than specifically with portable devices, Carr described phenomena that the advent of the smartphone accelerated. Carr's attention to the neurological effects of online life is well complemented by a reflection five years ago from Andrew Sullivan when he checked himself into rehab for digital addiction. His 700-word essay published about that experience, what led him there, how close he was to breaking down, and what it was like to suffer withdrawal, foregrounds the spiritual dimension of what was at stake. Sullivan's original print title was My Distraction Sickness and Yours. If you find it online or in his uh, new collection just out called On a Limb, it is called I Used to Be a Human Being. It describes more than just his personal experience, but a new epidemic of distraction, which is our civilization's specific weakness. 
and the problem is spiritual. As Sullivan put it, the threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure, the threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. Sullivan aptly draws on traditional religion to make sense of this challenge. The Judeo-Christian tradition, he says, recognized a critical distinction and tension between noise and silence, between getting through the day and getting a grip on one's whole life. The Sabbath, he says, the Jewish institution co-opted by Christianity, was a collective imposition of relative silence, a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity. According to Sullivan, the loss of a cultural habit of Sabbath changes us. It slowly removes, without our even noticing it, he writes, the very spaces where we can gain a footing in our minds and souls that is not captive to constant pressures or desires or duties, and the smartphone has all but banished them. I want to try to bridge the gap between these two discourses, brains and souls, the neuroscientific objectivity of Carr and the spiritual interiority of Sullivan. I believe philosophical approaches to the soul help us to bridge that gap, but first it will help for us to attend to an attempt to bridge it technologically, the project of artificial intelligence. The advances in computer processing that have made portable digital devices possible have also enabled the collection and analysis and use of data on a scale and in a manner never before imagined. And advances in artificial, artificial intelligence are informing the design of digital technology so that now it is not just the case that digital media devices happen to change us, but that more than any other previous technology, they are designed to change us. We know that social media isn't really free. We aren't the customer, but the product. That is to say, by using social media, we are voluntarily providing information about ourselves, and that information is valuable. But a common misunderstanding is that social media companies collect data to sell it, leading many to assume that the problems we face relate primarily to privacy and economic exploitation. In fact, however, social media companies don't exactly sell the data they collect. It's too valuable to sell. As conveyed in the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which you should all watch, it's on Netflix. The collected data holds the key to change our behavior. In the words of Jaron Lanier, who helped design artificial intelligence, but now warns of its dangers, the goal is changing what you do, what you think, who you are. Tim Kendall, former director of monetization at Facebook, says the question driving media companies is, how much of your life can we get you to give us? Social media wants you without any regard for your own good. Google's former design ethicist, Tristan Harris, now president of the Center for Humane Technology, explains social media isn't a tool that's just waiting to be used. It has its own goals. It has its own means of pursuing them by using your psychology against you. Even from a purely economic perspective, the industry exploits its users. The business model has been called surveillance capitalism, in which profit comes from the promise of a kind of psychological custody. Every major smartphone app, especially social media, is the interface for an artificial intelligence algorithm 
which constantly processes everything it learns about you, updating a virtual representation of you, testing hypotheses about it against your real behavior, and continuing to update the model. The goal is not merely to predict your patterns of behavior, but by presenting you with customized digital stimuli to actually shape what you do. Through its app, a social media company doesn't serve people, but makes markets in them. What is commodified is not information from and about you, but your very attention and behavior. In market terms, Shoshana Zuboff of the Harvard Business School calls it trading in human futures. It is thus not merely the data that these companies try to harvest, but your mind and your will. In the documentary, Lanier clarifies the product of social media is not information or attention, but, quote, the gradual, slight, imperceptible change in your own habits of behavior and perception. Harris uses more directly moral terms. It's seducing you. It's manipulating you. It wants things from you. Manipulation, seduction. It wants things from you. Do you hear the language of temptation, of spiritual danger? These tech leaders have seen it, participated in it, engineered it, and profited from it. Yet they have also protected their children from it, and they are horrified by it. They apparently feel guilt and even seek absolution through activism and a new evangelization of responsible reform. If unaccountable powers are using weaponized neuroscience in the form of artificial intelligence algorithms to manipulate us, maybe there should be some oversight. Some of the participants in the social dilemma advocate greater government regulation of tech companies. And recently, a Facebook employee drew headlines supposedly blowing the whistle on Facebook not taking seriously enough its political influence. I'm not sure she revealed anything that we didn't already know. <laughs> if the algorithms are manipulating us, we might want to appeal to a power strong enough to make sure it manipulates us the right way. Alternatively, maybe we could design the algorithms better or contrive a new algorithm to protect us. Thrive Global is a company that helps organizations create a behavior change ecosystem. Its website currently touts its behavior change technology platform, which promises a holistic approach to increasing your people's well-being and resilience. The Thrive app uses artificial intelligence to develop the whole human, supporting your people's physical, mental, and emotional and mental well-being in one comprehensive platform. Thrive's holistic behavior modification app was enabled by the purchase in 2019 of a company called Boundless Mind a neuroscience-based artificial intelligence company offering an AI platform for behavior design. This is all this language is from their archived webpage. Website copy from 2018 bragged about building engagement and retention and helping app usage to become a user's habit. Habits are programmable. The boundless AI optimizes when and how to praise and encourage each user uniquely. Boundless Mind was itself a strategic 2017 rebrand of a company originally founded in 2014 as Dopamine Labs. Its website was unapologetic about the drug addiction metaphor. UseDopamine.com announced 
Keeping users engaged isn't luck, it's science. Give users the right hit of dopamine at the right moment and they'll stay longer, do more, and monetize better. Co-founder Randy Brown said, we crafted it to learn something about the structure of how human motivation works. It's now getting enough data on its own to make meaningful observations to change human behavior. Their homepage announced it was building the future of web scale mind control. You see how they had to rebrand it. <laughs> Notice the progression from getting them hooked and brain hacking and mind control to behavior design and behavior engineering, and then to behavior change for holistic well-being. Rebranded from engineering addiction to cultivating virtue, the packaging has changed and perhaps even the intention, but the method and the mechanism is the same. Artificial intelligence does not so much fortify the self against manipulation, but only submit it to a more comprehensive, benevolent version. It is understandable that we would respond to the dangers of technology by seeking better oversight or more humane design. But if that is all we do, we are only accepting a technocratic paradigm that gave rise to our concerns. A paradigm that sees people as means, not ends, that doesn't take responsibility for action, that doesn't care about truth. A technocrat only focuses on the effectiveness of a means to a given end, with no wonder about what the end should be. That may well describe the operation of artificial intelligence, but it can't be the attitude of intelligent human beings who want to know how to resist the influence of the algorithm. One aspect of the Social Dilemma documentary manages to convey the spiritual stakes of this technocratic nightmare quite vividly. Have any of you seen this documentary, by the way? A clever artistic choice to make the film more dramatic and not just a series of talking heads, centers around an imaginative personification of the algorithm. The complex artificial intelligence that constantly monitors and responds to a user's behavior is depicted on screen by three figures. Each represents essential initiatives at social media companies, engagement, advertising, and growth. Scheming and conspiring to attract, hold, and deploy a user's attention, they are cold, and manipulative, but they are not impersonal and mechanistic. Indeed, they are each skillfully played by the same actor, as if displaying the interior dialogue of a powerful being. The filmmaker's dramatic sensibility makes plain. The threat is spiritual. The algorithm wants to steal your soul. Let me put it another way. The algorithm is functionally demonic. What it, what it achieves through digital processing is exactly what C.S. Lewis depicts the fallen angels doing in his famous portrayal of temptation, the screw tape letters. They analyze your psyche in order to manipulate it. Lewis's book consists of fictional letters from master tempter Screwtape advising his nephew, apprentice Wormwood. Most of Screwtape's advice is about particular modes of temptation, which work by corrupting common and natural desires, say for food and friendship, sex and marriage, status and security, knowledge and political engagement. But up front, Screwtape describes to Wormwood and to us, the readers, the basic what and how of leading humans into sin. It is not by proposing devil worship. It is not even by directly planting thoughts and intentions. Demons don't teach, they mislead, they confuse, they color our perceptions. 
they lead our attention astray. Their dominant work is distraction. Screwtape explains the work of demons in language that could describe the effort of the AI algorithms. Your business, he says, is to fix his attention on the stream of immediate sense experience. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. Lewis's demons, like the algorithm, don't have direct access to our will and intellect, but they can infer things about them and move them indirectly through an uncanny ability to monitor our physical activity, our heartbeats, our eye movements, our expressions. They see all our behavior, even the subtlest and most imperceptible physiological changes, and from these they can infer our fears, our desires, our intentions, and our thoughts. That is all they need to get our attention, to place temptations before us, to frame our decisions, and so to modify our behavior. Lewis meant to scare us, but he also meant to encourage. His story of temptation is not a horror story. It is clever and very comic. Indirectly through Screwtape's letters, we learn about how to strengthen ourselves against the tempter's art. We can learn from this. For while the technology of digital temptation may be new, the means of protecting ourselves is old. Before getting to this advice, however, let us consider a crucial assumption. I suspect that how threatening you find the algorithm depends to some degree on how you think human consciousness is related to our biology. For if you think human agency and awareness is entirely a function of and dependent on physical processes, it would be very scary indeed to realize just how much power modern technology can and will increasingly exercise over your body. It implies the possibility of not merely technological temptation and manipulation, but of technological oppression and possession. That agency and awareness are functions of physical processes is a common assumption but not a necessary assumption of modern neuroscience. The project of neuroscience proceeds with the working hypothesis that by understanding the operations of physical, physiological systems, we will be able to explain the cognitive life of human beings. This hypothesis goes way back. Plato, again, in the Phaedo, puts an argument in the mouth of Simeus that our life or psyche or soul is a function of the physical activity of our parts. To communicate this, Simeus strikes on a charming metaphor. The soul is like the harmony of an instrument. This is an attractive hypothesis, for it seems to account for features of our life power that we regard as mysterious. Like music coming from an instrument, it is invisible, it is valuable, it can't exactly be reduced to physical structure, nor located in one part or another of the physical instrument, and yet, one can kill a harmony by physically damaging the instrument. The soul as harmony, as a function of physical activity, fits well with all of this. But in the Phaedo, Socrates quickly demolishes the theory. A harmony has no power to direct or rule the instrument. The instrument directs or rules the harmony. Socrates does not deny that the soul is affected by the body, nor that we can learn about the soul's powers by studying the body. But in large part due to its ruling or providence over the body, the soul is even more marvelous than a musical harmony. There is much to wonder about here, 
And we could say, to modify the phrase from Plato and Aristotle describing the origins of philosophy, that neuroscience begins with wonder. How are particular life functions related to bodily activity? This is the key question that motivated the Aristotelian understanding of the soul, and it proceeded to differentiate various life powers, the different things a living organism does to move and grow and negotiate its environment. To understand human life, we especially need to differentiate various cognitive powers or modes of awareness, some, but not all of which, we share with other animals. We tend to think of consciousness or intelligence as one thing, but the mystery of it is that it draws on and unifies so many different things. Sensing, feeling, imagining, evaluating, judging, anticipating, wishing, guessing, remembering, calculating, intending, deliberating, wondering, contemplating. And some of those we seem to have more control over than others, more responsibility to direct or exercise. Neuroscience imagines each of these as a function of something physical in our bodies, and so in principle detectable and even replicable. For hundreds of years, we didn't have tools like electromagnetic resonance imaging, or even x-rays, or even sophisticated surgery to detect that activity nor did we even have the theoretical models like chemistry or atomic and electromagnetic theories that have made modern neuroscience what it is. Nor did we have the ability to try to build replicas or simulations of such activities. And in fact, all of these arise and advance together. But something like the neuroscientific aspiration to discover and explain the inner bodily workings of cognitive experience did evolve even without the assumption that all cognitive experience is a function of bodily activity. Neuroscience didn't begin with materialism, it began with wonder, and it proceeds, as Plato's Simeus did, through metaphors. As Plato's Phaedo showed, the key question of neuroscience has always been, to what shall we analogize the soul's activity? Empirical study of the mechanisms of life function does not require the Simeus hypothesis that the soul is a harmony, but it seems to draw energy from having some metaphor or other. We can see the development of neuroscience as grasping for ever more complicated metaphors for how the wondrous activity of mind could be connected to bodily activity. Some ancient thinkers thought the of the body as a series of pumps and vessels. Descartes thought of the body as a machine. Indeed, he took the metaphor of machine so literally that life and consciousness was in principle entirely separable from it for him. He regarded consciousness and embodiedness as so different that the one could be imagined totally without the other. I may be dreaming, and the I that is dreaming may only be an immaterial being, an angel with no body at all. The discovery of electricity gave a new set of metaphors the soul as charges moving through circuits. And the invention of computers gave us even more, an even more elaborate metaphor. Indeed, computers are so sophisticated that when we started, we compared their functions to human ones, storage as memory, processing as decisions. But now that the computer is more familiar and comprehensible than the mysterious brain, it has become the root of the metaphor for human processing and retrieval. And many have imagined that human consciousness is software that could, at least in principle, be uploaded to run on another platform. The technological details have changed, but we are not far from Simeus's metaphor of a musical instrument's harmony. 
Increasingly, however, neuroscientists themselves are facing the fact that the mechanistic models are inadequate and that even trying to isolate the brain from the rest of the body may itself be as much of a mistake as Descartes isolating the pineal gland from the rest of the brain. It seems we think with our whole bodies. An important branch of neuroscience even explores the cognitive significance of our intestinal tract. And the irreducibility of organic life is increasingly acknowledged. Not only can we treat the brain almost as an organism in its own right, we can treat it as a collection of organisms. Empirical research itself is running up against the limits of the brain as computer model. Both the complexity of the brain and the evolutionary accounts of its development lead, a, lead us to think of it not just as an organ, but as an organism, or even a collection of organisms in a kind of mysterious parliament. With his thousand brains hypothesis, the neuroscientist Jeff Hawkins imagines the brain as a kind of socio-political entity with collections of structures building consensus and voting and vetoing. Neuroscience often learns from and contributes to the field of artificial intelligence, attempts to produce and simulate and replicate these living functions and machines. Along the way, both neuroscience and artificial intelligence find greater need to attend to psychology and philosophy in the form of theoretical neuroscience or cognitive science or cognitive psychology. In other words, the very empirical study of animal life activity cannot leave behind the original Aristotelian reflection on the different kinds of consciousness or cognition. Whatever metaphor hypothesis neuroscientists work with informs their research into the brain, and it also suggests the best hopes of replicating the brain's work by artificial means. So maybe your consciousness is not a harmony or a pump or a network of gears and levers or a collection of circuits, nor even a deterministic software program. Maybe instead it is a complex self-learning algorithm rewiring itself in iterative feedback loops of parallel processing. Maybe. Yet there remain some pesky functions used even in pursuing empirical science, but which are not captured in even our most advanced metaphors or, or models. Human memory is not mere retrieval, but an act of conjuring, inherently creative and akin to imagination. Deciding is not simply running a subroutine, but an exercise of agency of will. And abstract thought is more than processing information. It is understanding concepts and affirming truth, comprehending realities that transcend whatever physical means may encode or communicate them. To the extent that the algorithm is still played out only in and through physical activity, it is no more like a rational soul than is a musical harmony. And the same is true of any metaphor or model that would reduce living and thinking to motion in a machine. If Plato and Aristotle are right, we won't be able to build a brain, only to simulate it, and really only to simulate only some of its cognitive functions, without the ones that make us most human. I earlier compared social media's psychic insinuation with demonic manipulation. The comparison did not imply devious intention, but was meant as a realistic assessment of our predicament, which could point us towards help. C.S. Lewis was drawing on a very old confidence in the spiritual resources by which human beings can resist the pervasive temptations that digital technology has mechanized and monetized. In creating his demonic characters, he seems to have drawn on St. Thomas Aquinas' analysis of angelic powers in the Summa Theologiae. Aquinas takes up the puzzle of how purely spiritual beings could interact with 
much less influence, the embodied rational animal. Strictly speaking, our will and intellect can only be known directly by God. But even observant human beings can sometimes discern your secret thoughts and intentions through their effects, subtle muscle movements, the discretion, the direction of a glance, the quickening pulse, the drain of blood from your face. Angels, fallen and otherwise, can do this even better than any human being or analytic tool. And while they can thus guess at our thoughts and intentions, which remain subject to our will, they have more immediate access to our imaginations and desires, as embedded in our bodily nature. So they can't control our will or intellect, but they can tempt us through our feelings and perceptions. Temptation is not puppetry. Spiritual creatures can't directly move our wills, but they can sway us in the manner of an orator, anticipating our preconceptions or provoking our passions. Temptation doesn't control choice, but it modifies what we perceive as choice-worthy. Arousing passions of anger and craving, tempting spirits can make it easier for us to consent to what we otherwise would not. So demons stimulate our behaviors through a craft akin to rhetoric. The devil, Aquinas reminds us, is called the kindler of thoughts inasmuch as he incites to thought by the desire of the things thought of, by way of persuasion, by rousing the passions. Demons assault us then by the same mechanism and for the same reason as the ever adapting and insidious algorithm in order to explore this inward disposition of man to discern susceptibility to habits, and then by manipulating attention to develop those habits. This sober realization, paradoxically, is the source of hope. Neither spiritual demons nor digital algorithms can directly violate our intellect and will. They seek them, but they can never possess them without our consent. The defense against the new dark arts of Silicon Valley thus relies on the same tools as ancient spiritual warfare, especially custody of our attention. Of course, demons attack our weaknesses. Virtues have been called the spiritual armor, protecting us from assault, and it is vice that makes us vulnerable. But even here, demons need opportunity to attack. Advising Wormwood on effective methods of temptation, Screwtape warns against letting his target engage in basic exercises of will and reason. Going for a walk, reading a book, even asking questions, these are all powerful human defenses against the distractions of the devil. Individual acts of thinking and choosing for oneself, exercising self-awareness and taking responsibility for one's actions and thoughts, the distinctive activities of the rational animal, these are all themselves safeguards against the soul snatcher's designs. I hope attending a philosophy lecture can be an occasion for soul strengthening too. Listening and interpreting require a disciplined focus of attention, contemplating, wondering, asking why. All of these are intentional human acts. All of them are, in the face of temptation, subversive and protective. Perhaps this can give us new appreciation for the power of prayer, sometimes described as a spiritual weapon. More than any other deliberate activity, prayer activates and directs the soul's various modes of cognition ordering them and directing them to deeper understanding of self and union with God. Think of the four phases of traditional Lectio Divina, reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation, each focusing and directing in different ways the intellect and will and ordering them to God, receiving and interpreting words, 
considering their meaning and application, addressing God in specific intentions, and lovingly receiving God's presence. Or consider the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, a classic handbook for retreat. The standard cycles of prayer repeat three steps, each demanding discipline over one's attention. First, composition, exercising imagination and memory, recalling our sins, visualizing oneself in the presence of other people, even imagining particular sensations of smell or touch or hearing, all to be more aware of one's soul and put oneself in the presence of God. Second, analysis, activating the intellect, conceiving understanding and assenting to truths, reasoning about their implications and connections, contemplating them. Third, colloquy, reflecting on choices and principles of choice, resolving to make good decisions, exerting the will in acts of humility and love. This method of prayer exercises the traditional Trinitarian powers of the soul, memory, intellect, and will, three powers that incidentally the algorithm wants but cannot access without our cooperation, and three powers that the most advanced artificial intelligence will prove incapable of simulating. At a very basic level, simply directing our attention, taking responsibility for what we give our cognitive energy to, we experience the mysterious agency that Simeus's harmony theory could not account for, and we discipline the very thing the digital media is so eager to distract. The powers that neuroscience thus finds most elusive are the powers that can protect us from the assault. As it has ever been, the central challenge of spiritual discipline is, are we choosing where to give our attention? Attention is the inner energy of the soul, and when it is sucked away and diverted, the soul falls into asadia, spiritual sloth, a failure of the will to act. And a path to the deadly apathy of asadia is its daughter vice of curiositas, which we may call a cognitive intemperance, discharging the energy of the soul's attention without the discipline of intention. Digital technology depends on and fosters and exploits this cognitive intemperance. This is why so many of the books mentioned at the beginning address the problem of distraction. In our natural environment, we have plenty of things to distract us, but also plenty to remind us where we must give our attention and to move us to action. What is unprecedented about the environment of social media is its potentially limitless distraction. The age of digital media has unleashed a profoundly threatening human experiment by drawing us to waste not only our time, but our attention. By, by drawing us to waste not only our time, but our attention, social media seduces us to waste our souls. Our brightest engineers have trained our most powerful technology to act with the psychological craftiness of demons. But like the hapless targets of screw tape and wormwood, protect to protect ourselves from the tempting distractions of technology, we can begin by asking about it and recognizing it for what it is, by wondering about our nature and remembering who we are. We can go for a walk or read a book. We can philosophize and pray. Thank you. Um, would you like to do a Q&A?
Yeah, yeah, let's okay. talk. Okay, so now we're going to do a Q&A session. So if you've got questions or would like to have a question, uh, pop further on any of the points that you made. Uh, go right ahead. thinking about it. I'm reading, I'm trying to be like an algorithm and read your body <laughs> and which way are your eyes looking, your hand pushing. Go ahead. Um, so I think like there's definitely different perspectives on this and different, you know, societal groups and circles. And so like, you know, Christians generally and, you know, specifically Catholics with a greater intellectual tradition. Oh, am I supposed to speak into that? No, it's fine. Oh, okay. Catholics with a greater intellectual tradition are going to have a, a different perspective on this than, say, other Christians and then, of course, secular society at large. Um, how, how do you think that these dangers of this phenomenon are best communicated to those without a Christian perspective? Um, that's a great question. I mean, it, it's... Um, The rhetorical challenge of, of helping people see it is is present in, in, in anything, right? Not just this question, right? Um, I do think Christians have um, uh, treasures and resources that they can draw on um, that are that are irreplaceable. But I mean, you meet people where they are. Um, I, I watched this documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma. Um, I watched it with uh, my two younger kids. Um, and you know, I didn't talk philosophy about it with them, um, but it's it's very powerful. That could be one thing to do is say, "Hey, let's watch this documentary together and talk about it." Um, I don't. I mean, the funny thing is <clears throat> that the the people who made the film probably wouldn't use the word spiritual. I'm doing a lot of interpretation of what I saw on the screen. Right? These are a bunch of nerds who know something's wrong. They are horrified. And they they are they are grasping for language to describe it, and they don't have it. Yeah. But the but the film and the and and the last half hour of the film is, is actually disappointing. So if you watch like the first, I think it's about an hour and a half. If you watch the first hour, it, you can stop there, because in the last in the last half hour is when they start they start saying, well, what can we do about it? And, well, we'll get we'll get a government commission, or we'll start a new tech company, or we'll you know it's like okay. Yeah, thanks. I understand that's what you're trying to do. Um, but but the problem is so well described in the first part of it. And um, there's another moment in the film that I didn't I didn't describe in the in the lecture. Very early in the in the documentary, um, they they're sitting down the, the different tech people. There's like half a dozen of them, all like huge bigwigs from from all the major uh, Silicon Valley companies. And um, so they're sitting them down and like checking the mics and then the interviewer off the screen asks several of them, you know, in turn, so what's the problem? And each one of them is like speechless. Like they're, they're asked just directly, they, they, presumably they've, came, they've come prepared to say all sorts of things. They, they're talkative, they want, they want to talk. But you ask them straight on, so what's the problem? And, and they don't have the words to say it. And I think that's also very powerful, right? That, that's why I say they're horrified, but they don't know what what language to put on. Although they do say a lot of things that that a Christian would hear as, "Oh, that's the language of temptation." You're just, you know, they use words like seduction. Um, they they know without appealing to a moral theory or without appearing uh, appealing to a religious tradition, they know it's really weird for a whole industry to have been designed to 
to suck your attention. <laughs> that's that's really nasty once you once you realize what you've done. Um, and so to, to to answer your question, how do you talk about that? Well, you find how far can someone go? What what what, what language do they already have? Um, and then and then how could you um, lead lead them to see that, that what they're perceiving might even be better described by you know going another step and another step and another step. I wouldn't assign um, Aquinas' treatise on the angels right up front. Um, that you know, but for for someone who has eyes to see. Oh, there's there's an interesting connection here. That that can be really interesting. Yeah. Well, and then comes to my education question. Um, you know, the people who said the, the last half hour of the documentary, um, mm -hmm. in which they said, "Well, what can we do about this?" In a way, it, it's a it's it's a appropriate response to a problem that's not just an individual problem. I mean, your talk is called "How is my." iPhone changing me. Yes. It could be called how is our how are our iPhones changing us because there's this collective social dimension. I mean, it's not just a matter of an individual's you know disciplinary world or, or selfhood being yeah. shifted. It's a matter of how it's affecting the collective. And um, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm I'm thinking along the lines of the spiritual you know demonic kind of language that you were using to talk about how we deal with this as individuals. What do you do if it's a, <laughs> a collective, a case yes. of collective possession, you know, so to speak? Well, and to be clear, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking, you know, say government oversight. I mean, probably, I, I think some of these companies um, probably should be broken up. Um, I think that that um, that some of some of our legal structure developed for previous technologies hasn't adapted to the new world in which we live. Um, but but my point is that that's just not that's not enough to address the depths of the problem. In in a sense, that you could only have effective government oversight if if you also had politicians who were asking fundamental questions about human nature and what is life for. And um, even if we don't think about it in terms of government oversight, yeah. just use the word collective. Yes. Instead of government. Yeah. Is there, and we, and we recognize that it's a spiritual problem in some ways. Is, can, can there be some kind of collective spiritual solution to get silence here? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a weakness of this talk that I focus more on the on the individual. And and we are, we're the rational animal, but we're also the social animal. Um, and we don't just pray alone. We, we, we pray um, you know, in community, um, and it's it's one thing for me to have a personal discipline with my iPhone, but it's better if my family keeps me accountable, or if my friends are, and I are, are challenging each other to do something. So, um, I don't want to give the impression here that that we're sort of uh, lone warriors, um, and and it's all about willpower. That's not that's not the message that I'm trying to communicate. Um, but that that, um, and I actually think it will help us realize our dependence on others. If, if we uh, realize what is it that we need to protect in ourselves, right? If I want to protect my sense of who I am, right? Well, I better do a better job of um, staying connected to my friends and not withdraw. Um, and this is only going to get worse and worse, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I was finishing this, this lecture as news about the metaverse is, is um, in the headlines, right? Um, in, in 10 years, someone's going to give a Thomistic Institute lecture about 
you know, how does it change you that you're wearing virtual reality goggles all day and that you're, you know, that you, um, someone's going to do that in 10 years. Um, uh, how, what, what, the, 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 the resources that we need are both a, a kind of knowledge about, about the soul, but also, um, action that is human action, which will mean that it is, that it is social. I, th I think actually, especially in Catholic, Catholics have been late to do this. Some, some Protestant communities have been, have been better, but I think Catholics are going to start drawing the line in, in, in communities about what kinds of technologies are acceptable to use or in what conditions. I'm surprised that more schools haven't banned smartphones, uh, although the elite ones have. The elite? The elite, elite schools ban smartphones. <laughs> nice. um, Secondary schools, you mean? Yes. And uh, elite families don't let their nannies have smartphones. So, like, it, it's, and that's 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 an example of a social cult. They're they're deciding we're going to create a little a little pod here, and we're we're going to reinforce a culture because because we've given up on the, the culture out there. But we we have to do some of that, but we also have to try to influence. The wider culture as well, but we need we need the support of communities that uh, that are helping us all do that together. All right, I don't know who to call on next. It's actually related to what okay. we were just talking about um, in terms of our um, as you know, people are now living within these social media communities. That's kind of already happened. It's in yeah. the culture. Um, and as Christians, we're called to evangelize. Yep. So obviously there are um, certain figures like Bishop Robert Barron and things who are, you know, have these platforms and are, are evangelizing. And I would argue that those, <coughs> those are good initiatives. Yep. So I guess my question is, what is our role as just kind of lay Christians, people who might not have these kind of platforms, um, to still try to evangelize on these kind of platforms like try to show life as you know living a trying to live a virtuous life on these kind of platforms because they exist yeah. um, and I think it's important to have examples of that within these platforms if people aren't engaging with others who live that way kind of in, in real life yeah. um, so I guess what's the balance of that do we have a role should we just leave that for kind of platforms that are large like Bishop Robert Barron um, in order to kind of save our own souls or kind of what is our responsibility to try to do that yeah that's a great question and um uh in case anyone uh was worried like i'm not a luddite i'm not saying we have to get rid of smartphones i don't i don't know that that would be possible at this point um i have i have an iphone in my pocket i have a twitter account um I'm, i i um uh i think that christians have a responsibility to figure out how to to speak, even in environments that aren't designed for them to speak, um, and that's very hard to know how to do. I mean, it, it, there is there isn't a one size fits all um, solution to the problem that you've raised. Um, but yeah, there there are lots of there are lots of big famous Christians on Twitter. There's also lots of quiet, you know, Christian observers on Twitter, or people just commenting nice little encouraging things to their friends, or you know, posting pictures of what their families are doing. Um, I'm not on Instagram, I'm not on Facebook, but those, you could say the same thing about those 
Um, there are better and worse ways to use those platforms. Um, I'm, I am somewhat of a hypocrite, but I also think that I can use Twitter to philosophize. I, 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 I've gotten enough feedback from people to believe that some of what I was already doing off of Twitter can be translated there. And that, um, and maybe I'm just rationalizing because I'm addicted. I don't know. But, 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 but I'll, this is also something that I think everybody using social media has to constantly ask themselves. I joked about an examination of conscience, but I actually do think there need to be specific questions um, for, for Catholics going to confession about their use of media, right? I mean, you, you look at a, a typical one, and it, it's like, did you did you read a heretical magazine, or did you look at pornography? And then, like, that's it. That's all we've asked about media. Our whole lives are media now. There should be lots and lots of specific questions. Did I did I waste time? Did I, you know, did I, um, you know, questions about Curiositas and Vesadia, uh, channeled through channeled through social media? I, I, what, did I do it out of vanity, or was I actually trying to help people? Um, so, so I think that in, rather than just decide, oh, it's, it's good or bad, we have, we have to be even more conscientious about what are our intentions and what are our, what are our, um, what, 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 what psychic powers are we exercising in what venues? Um, and that takes, a, that takes a very high level of self-awareness. Go yes, ahead. Yes. High, high level of self-awareness. So, you know, it, it, to, when the, all this stuff first came out, oh, it's neutral, yeah. right? It's neutral. It's yeah. only it's a, tool, a tool, right? Yeah. So how, you know, in, in uh, admitting you have a problem, right, is the first step in. So, you know, so what do you think the self-awareness is that really this isn't neutral anymore? Like that. Do you think that's starting to change, or is that yeah. where we need to start? You know, making sure people realize this is not neutral. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of want to pull the room and ask, like, how much of what I described was new to you, and how much of that was like, oh yeah, I knew that. That's out there. Well, so, you, dodging that, right? so, you you yeah, have seen it. Yeah. Social media a long time ago. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard most of it. Just the spiritual stuff was really cool. Everything yeah, was like with the Catholic faith. So you're not you're not surprised. That this that the technology itself was designed to insinuate itself into your no, into your psyche. Yeah. yeah. See, when I when I co-authored a book four years ago, uh, "A Mind at Peace: Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in the Age of Distraction," came out in 2017. When 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 Christopher Bloom and I wrote that book, that was that was news. Like, not a lot of people understood that. Um, uh, in fact. I mean, some of the books that I cited at the beginning too, like some people were still getting used to just the idea that it changes the way you think or the way that you interact with the world, right? The, the Nicholas Carr uh, uh, neuroplasticity um, uh, argument um, that was that was still new. So I think I think actually people are catching on really fast, and partly it's because more stuff's being written about it and, and it's talked about. Partly it's because more people are experiencing it, right? So the very first generation to get smartphones, they were addicted and they didn't realize they were addicted. But their kids saw their parents change. Um, some, of the, some of the most perceptive people about the dangers of digital technology are kids watching their parents. 
parents watching their kids are also very perceptive and, and, and often disappointed in how their, their kids are changing. <coughs> but, you know, like I have, I have a, a, a son in eighth grade. Almost everybody else, and this is in a Catholic school, almost everybody else in his grade had a smartphone. Um, eighth, eighth grade. And he wanted one, and he knew, since he's the youngest, he knew that in our house, this, the, the precedent we set was not until ninth grade. And I'm still embarrassed about that. Like, I would like to wait longer, but it's really hard in high school. You, you are, we, have, we just, and may, I'm, not, I'm not justifying it, but I'm describing the, the, the decision that we felt we made was, well, we can either let him have a, a, a phone like everybody else in high school, or we can make him a, a social pariah who will have no friends. And like, it was hard. It, it, if there had been four other families who were willing to, to bite the bullet with us and say no to smartphones, we would have done it, but couldn't find them. There, there weren't any. We would have been alone. Right, so this is the struggle, right? I, you you want you want to meet the culture, but also set a set a different path. But I watched the social dilemma with my eighth grader, and he stopped asking for a smartphone. Um, my my daughter, so I have three sons and a daughter. The daughter is the next oldest. She's in high school, um, and I don't know. You watch you watch it, it's it, it's portrayed in the in the, the show Social Dilemma, and it's portrayed in a lot of the literature too. Um, that in certain ways, um, girls are more prone to get sucked into it because of the, the, the social dimension of it. Um, maybe maybe it's because of her personality. Maybe it's because she saw her two brothers and didn't like what she saw in them. She has been very disciplined about, like she's just not interested in it. She doesn't want Instagram or Facebook. She keeps her phone downstairs, doesn't bring it, doesn't, I mean, she has it in her room sometimes, but she, she doesn't sleep with it in her room. She's not allowed to, but, Neither were her brothers, and they did it anyway. Um, so sometimes watching, I, I describe this as a grand experiment. We have introduced a a a, um, a digital drug, and and we all embraced it. And now we're now we're playing out what are the what are the side effects and what what practices could we have? Um, that I, I've done more than answer. Your question, but all of these things are connected, right? How do we talk to people? How much is is the social dimension uh, important? I saw your hand. So, um, so now building off of that, I actually did not have a phone for a while, and I felt like that was a great sort of experience in my life. Yes, but everybody else did not. Where's some? Right. <laughs> I know. Where's some like strategies? Yeah, like, you were a loser. You weren't. You weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was that was a part of the moment that I died at. Was the main concern, but um, <laughs> what are some strategies about that? Like, how do you separate yourself? How do you find yourself separating yeah. yourself from your phone? And like, why? Are you yeah, I mean, maybe you could maybe you could challenge your friends to do it with you. Uh, and maybe I mean, you, you find an occasion to do it. You say, hey, you know, rent's coming up. Let's let's agree that you know um, uh, Mondays and Fridays we're not going to touch our phones. Or, or, or we'll put, I mean, you, you choose how extreme you want to go there, but um, uh, you, you find an occasion or, or, or you say, hey, we're going on a road trip. Let's, let's agree that for 24 hours, we're just not going to check our phones. But you gotta, I think you've got to take advantage of, of the real embodied social nature of human beings and sort of challenge each other to do these things. I mean, a lot, a lot of families have something like this where, you know, there's a place in the kitchen where the phones go during a meal. Or I heard of colleges where there's baskets in the, 
in the tape or in the dining hall. Mm -hmm. You put your phone so that you actually sit down and talk to people. Um, now it takes. I mean, people have to do it, but but little things like um, establishing the the possibility and the precedent of doing it can can sometimes be enough. Um, I don't know if that's enough for no, you. I, I just wanted to say. I just want to add to that. I mean, that was like probably the most at peace I felt with myself in a long time. The most what? Like I was at peace with myself. Yeah. Before that run, it was incredible. Yeah. My oldest my oldest son, his favorite place in the world is a summer camp that he went to. Uh, uh, several summers in a row in Canada for a month. No phones allowed. He knows that that is his best self. But if I try to tell him to put his phone down for just 10 minutes, it's like it's like a drug addict. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like I I know I talk to like different people about like because like I don't really use my phone. I don't carry it with me. Like I usually try to check it just like once a day when I'm at home, and that's like that's it. And then that stresses people out sometimes. But like when I talk to other people about like, you know, hey, I don't use my phone. They like seem, everyone's always like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I wish I could do that. I want to do that. But yeah. then everyone else is like, and I say, why don't you do it? They're like, oh, I'm scared to. Yes. And it's like, so how do you get people to just realize to look that they can, to get over the fear of, oh, I can live my life without, because everyone's like, oh, what if I get into an emergency or something or whatever. But like, how do we get people to recognize like, even if, you have to like let go of that if you want to be like free of that. Like, how do you let people go let go of the fear? I mean, I, I can only recommend you just keep doing what you're doing. Right? You're you're modeling it. You're showing, hey, you know, like I can do it. Um, get get them to think about the ways in which they don't like the the constant presence or distraction. Um, I also think, I mean, there 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 are um, there are cases of people trying to design the technology so that it's less intrusive, right? You can get you can get a, a phone that has certain features, but not all of them. Um, you can get a phone that doesn't have a color screen. You can actually, it's very, very hard to do. Um, Apple doesn't want you to know how to do it. It takes about eight unintuitive steps, but you can you can you can make your iPhone grayscale. Did you know that? Yeah. It, it's hard though, right? Yeah. Could you like it's very hard to do. Um, but it it changes the the attractiveness. It changes the draw, and you know you can you can encourage people to try just little things like that. Um, I, I'm actually afraid that we'll figure out how to how to handle these things. You know, we'll start designing them better and, and develop better personal and social habits about how to use them. Just when it's too late, and these these are an obsolete technology because everybody's walking around with augmented reality glasses, right? That's the next step. That's what the companies want next. That's that's the transition to the, the, the goal is the metaverse to get us to live constantly surrounded by stimulus, right? But the transition is going to be to have reality over layered with the stimulus, right? And, and, and you're gonna, that you know, people are going to be addicted to their smart glasses because they're going to be afraid to walk around the city without. Well, what if I don't know what the address is, or what if I, what if, what if it turns out like I forget how to, right? Because they're they're going to become dependent on. You know, the, the, this is a, it, the technology already exists. They just haven't figured out how to sell it to us yet. But but glasses where you you see reality, but it also layers things onto it so that like over your head I could see 
you know, well, it depends on what information is, is, is I have access to. But um, you know, if, if I were the if I were the admissions director at WCU over your head, would you need like a little dollar amount? That would be really useful if you're an admissions officer. It would be hard to resist that if you're an admissions officer. That's what I'm saying. Is there, a, is there a book you could recommend or some like digestible neuroscience about the memory aspect of this? Because that's something I was, I've been thinking about and was talking to somebody about just recently. I mean, like, even as the tinfoil hat guy that like stays away from the internet as much yeah. as possible, um, I still find myself like the other day I screenshotted something so I would remember it, and then but right. you know I just realized like. I proceed then to not remember it, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like uh, it, I, I just realize that you know my brain's trying to use this as a brain, you yeah. Know? So, yeah. Uh, so you know, I, something I've been interested in and would like to read more about. I'm sure it's back, out there. It goes back to Plato. Yeah, right. well, I mean, he I made found, the same comment about writing. I found the writing example pretty interesting because yeah. again, just something I've been thinking about. It. Um, I don't know. I don't know the full literature. The, of the books that I mentioned, the, the, one of the oldest is the, is the Nicholas Carr book. But I think, I think the basics of what he's describing um, are, are still current and relevant to sort of how the experience of um, the, the screen affects the way our memory works. Um, if you want something more hardcore neuroscience, um, the Distracted Mind book, um, that was, that's 2017. Um, the distracted mind, ancient brains in a high tech world. Um, and there's, I think, one of one of them is a neuroscientist, and the other is a psychologist. They're both at MIT. Um, high power book. Um, a lot of people are writing on this, though. I mean, when when set four years ago, when when Chris and I were working on our book, some of these things were just starting to be published. Um, while while we were finishing the, the the draft of the manuscript, the American Psychological Association came out with its first sort of uh, admission that smartphones were causing anxiety and depression. That was people were claiming that, but because the American Psychological Association hadn't made it official yet, it wasn't diagnosed that way. Right. Um, but again, that's that that was four years ago. That kind of seems like ancient history. Because um, nobody's surprised now. Like nobody, nobody would challenge you if you said, "Yeah, I'm feeling kind of depressed and anxious because I've been on my phone all day." Yeah, of course you are. That's what they do. They make you feel depressed and anxious. Um. Well, I, I won't make a note in my phone. I'll remember it. <laughs> good, good. Yes, sir. Uh, how how do you see um, how children and younger generations are being specifically targeted by these things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, just on the, the evolution of recommendations and things, uh, uh, 2017 was also around the first time that pediatricians started making recommendations for how much screen time kids should have. Before that, they weren't doing that. And conscientious parents were regulating that. But, but that was just considered, you know, like, helicopter parent stuff and, and now it's understood no this is actually a medical issue in pediatricians so now if you take kids to a pediatrician it's one of the many forms you fill out is like um, asking questions about um, media use 
um, which I think is a good thing. Maybe a little too late, but it's a good thing. Um, what do I, I mean, my, my youngest right now is 13, so I don't know what's happening with, with much younger than that. And he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a phone of his own. Um, uh, the, the, the social media companies, though, want the kids as young as they can be. Um, I noticed that, so, so my, my 13 year old have, has a, a Gmail address, which I set up for him a few years ago, so he could email with, with family members. Um, and when I set it up, um, because of his age, right, you, have to, you have to give, right up front, you gotta give Google information. And because of his age, right, it was it was it had certain parental controls built into it, and I, in principle, I could always go and monitor what, what was going on with his email address. Um, the day he turned thirteen, he got an email, not me, that said, you know, click here if you want to keep, keep parental controls. Click here if you don't. And I don't know why the law, some, some, something about the way that the law is written, something about the way that the tech companies have made, uh, you know, made their, their legal agreements, right? That's, that's when they think they can start separating the kids from their, their parents. But that's the goal. They, 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 to, it's not just that they want to hook them early, they want to make sure that they're not under parental supervision. Um, and I know I've heard horror stories, I haven't followed these up. But I've heard horror stories about kids who, you know, leave their kids alone with YouTube. And they think that, you know, if, if they play a few kids programs on YouTube, that the algorithm will just keep playing innocent kids programs. No, it takes them to nasty stuff really quickly. Nasty, nasty stuff. Um, that's intentional. There's no doubt about that. Um, and these are the kinds of things where, yeah, I think there should be regulation of that. I think that I think the people who designed that should be punished. They should be in jail. Um, that's child abuse. But <laughs> uh, those are just a couple of examples that I don't do you hear about about things? Are there things that, that you have in mind? Yes. <laughs> you, you don't want to talk about it on on the iPhone recording? <laughs> oh, there you go. Thank you. Um, so yeah, Thank uh, you for praying for them. Yeah. Yeah, they need it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you, Professor Hopefield. Uh, I think we're going to be that's, that's the end of the questions. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Thank you very much. Of course. And I'll hang you. around a little bit if you want to ask okay. a question. After we finish up. Thanks for your questions. Good, good conversation, guys.